Um, please, if you can turn your, to your, your Bibles, there's some Bibles under the seats there. I'm also going to post it here behind me, but it's really small and hard to see because it's a little longer of a longer scripture. So if you could reach out your, uh, reach down, grab your Bible, go to your digital uh, app, Bible apps, whatever you have available. It's the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 9. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In the month of Nisan, in the, tw- in the 20th year of King Ar- Artaxerxes, uh, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to, to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness, this is nothing but sadness of the earth. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long, how long will you be gone and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Right. Um, I'd just like to, if I may, welcome Sarah Chang up front. Just a brief bio. Um, Sarah actually serves as the National Director of Discipleship and Leadership for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and she's the Area Director with InterVarsity's Graduate and Faculty Ministries. Wow. Wow. That's great. So we are so lucky to have Sarah joining us this morning and sharing God's word. Let's give it up for Sarah. All right, you guys don't need to clap, it's okay. <laughs> all right, well, good morning. It's a real honor to be with all of you. I just want to say again, happy Father's Day to all the fathers or soon-to-be fathers or like fathers, um, uncles, father figures out there. Um, and a special welcome to all of you this morning and any of you who are visiting, especially for the first time, just want to say a special welcome to LGM again. Um, as Jason said, uh, my name is Sarah and my husband Robert and Junia, we've been going to LGM for a little bit over a year now. And it's been just a huge blessing to be part of this church community. Um, so I wanted to tell you just a little bit about myself and it also relates and kind of sets us up for where we're going in the passage of Nehemiah. Um, if you had told me when I was in middle school or high school that I would be like a full-time campus missionary, uh, I would not believe you, because if you knew me back then, I did not believe in God. I had lots of questions, and I didn't really think that God was something that was personal. Um, it was more just like an idea to me. Um, but there was a moment that I will never forget, and the moment came when I was going into ninth grade. So uh, did any of you guys go to a school that was really far away? No? Okay. I did. 
Um, I went to a school that was 45 minutes away. There was like multiple highways that you had to take. Um, and in order to get there, I had to take the bus because I was a freshman, so I couldn't drive. And I had to wake up, catch the bus at 6.15 in the morning. Um, and then we would ride all the way 45 minutes to the school. And for some reason, the bus liked to get there really early. And so then I had to like wait in the hallways. And the high school was huge. I didn't know my way around. I also didn't know anyone from my middle school that was coming to this high school. So I was literally not feeling great about going to this high school. Um, so I remember the first day of school, get on the bus, I like, you know, it's, it was fall, so I could probably see outside, but it was like still kind of dark. Long bus ride, and I get to the school, don't know anyone on the bus, get there, don't know where I'm at really, except I've been to orientation one time, um, and I didn't have anyone to talk to. And that was probably the loneliest that I've ever felt for me, in my you know, 14 years of age at that moment, the loneliest I had ever felt. Um, and maybe you can relate to those kinds of experiences where you just feel alone, you don't know what to do. Um, and for me, just remember, I'm a high school student, so this was like a really big deal for me. I was feeling insecure, I was feeling anxious. And I went back home after my first day of school, and I wasn't a Christian, grew up in a Christian home, kind of, um, but uh, I decided I was so desperate, I was so lonely, the only thing that I could think of was to pray. And uh, I didn't tell my parents, they didn't know about this, um, I don't even remember where I prayed, probably in my room, and my prayer went something like, um, Jesus, if you're real, um, can you please give me a friend at school tomorrow, because I am so lonely. <laughs> I know, this is how social I am. It's like, I just need to talk to someone. Um, so I, I prayed that. It was a very simple prayer. I uh, didn't write it down. And the next day, get on the bus. And I'm like, uh, you know, don't want to get up early. Don't want to go to school. Who am I going to meet? Um, and miraculously, God gave me friends. I don't know how it happened, but I started talking to people, or maybe they started talking to me, and suddenly I had people to walk around school with. I had people that, they were like, hey, do you want to explore East Campus? Let's go walk over to East Campus. So we did that all before the bell rang, and from that moment on, I still didn't, I wouldn't say I really believed in God strongly, with strong faith, um, but I knew that God had answered my prayer that day, um, and it was just a simple prayer. Um, and from then on, I was like, well, I don't know who Jesus is. He's a historical figure, but I kind of believe that God does answer prayers because who am I? I'm this small little 14-year-old. I'm praying that God would give me a friend. Like, how pathetic is that? But somehow, God heard my prayer and answered that prayer. Um, and so this morning, we're going to continue in Pastor Steve's sermon series for the summer, and that series is things that I need to be reminded of. Uh, things that we need to be reminded of. So this morning we're continuing in Nehemiah chapter 2, 1 through 9. And this passage, we're going to explain a lot of the context because it's Old Testament. There's a lot of things to understand that will help the, the story really come to life. But this story, this passage, Nehemiah, um, God's word, it's all about how God is faithful to his promises and faithful to hear our prayers. Even the cries of our heart, the things that people don't even know we're crying about on the inside, that God knows those things, and he doesn't just hear those prayers, but God actually answers them. Uh, he wants to answer them. 
And so just a little bit of background on Nehemiah and the times that he's living in. For those of you who had really good Sunday school teachers, um, you're going to be really bored because it's like a quick overview of Old Testament history, but I promise it'll be fast. Hopefully it will be engaging. Um, so Israel began as a united nation, right? They were the people that were brought out of exile, out of Egypt. They wandered in the desert for a really long time. And then they like whined to God and they were like, oh, we want a king, we want a king. And so God was like, fine, I'll give you a king. But the king was super bad. It was Saul, right? All the kids know this, right? Saul was the first king. He was disobedient. And then there were a whole bunch of other kings. So on the list on the right side, that's all the kings of Israel. And many of them, if you catalog them, most of them were bad kings in the sense that they didn't actually lead the people of Israel in a really good way. Um, So because of Israel's rebellion against God, they were supposed to be this set-apart people that were going to display who God was through how they lived together in community. Um, They were separated, and the kingdom was divided. So there was a northern kingdom. So if you see the map on the left, everything to that yellow line up and up was the northern kingdom. And for all of you kids who know about the 12 sons that Jacob had, the 12 tribes of Israel— Ten of those sons and all their family descendants were on the top, the northern kingdom, and then just two were on the bottom in Judah, the southern kingdom. And what's really important to know is that in the southern kingdom, that's where Jerusalem is. Um, And so they had the kind of the, the chosen holy city there in the southern kingdom. So the Assyrians took the northern kingdom into exile in 722 BC. Um, And I always remember Assyrians, and then the southern kingdom was taken by the Babylonians. I remember it by A and B. It was like A on top, B on the bottom. So Assyrians were um, capturing the northern kingdom, took them into exile, 722. And then 135 years later, in 587, the southern kingdom, which includes Jerusalem, was taken into exile by the Babylonians. And When I say taken into exile, um, everything in Jerusalem was burned. It was destroyed. Do you guys know what was in Jerusalem that was super important? Yes. The temple, yes. And for them, God's spirit, the Holy Spirit hadn't come and dwelled inside all the people. Um, And so the temple was really important because that's where the priests would go and they would actually meet God in the Holy of Holies. So the temple symbolized the center of their worship, the way that they offered sacrifices to God, the way that they made themselves right with God and worshiped God. So that was burned. It was destroyed. Everything was in ruins, and almost all the people were taken 900 miles away um, to a different land, a different culture, um, away from their hometown. Um, and this is pretty significant um, because it was, it was devastating because they were supposed to be the holy people chosen by God, uh, and now they find themselves in exile and away from that special place. So fast-forwarding just a little bit, specifically for Nehemiah, Uh, What was his context? So fast forward, uh, it's now 445 BC, uh, 140 years after Nehemiah's people were originally taken into exile by the Babylonians. So that means that Nehemiah's great-great-grandparents were probably the ones that had been taken. Do any of you guys know your great-great-grandparents? 
Do you know, do you know like the names or have you seen pictures? It feels like kind of far removed, but for Nehemiah, part of his job was to maintain like the memory, the honor of his ancestors. So he was quite tied to the people that he was connected and related to that had come out of ex- or come from exile um, out um, into the Babylonian place. They were 900 miles away. So here's a map here. Oops. Not yet, not yet. Um, so there's Susa. This is where they were taken. This was like the winter palace of the Persian kings. So in the wintertime, they would go because it's a little warmer. Um, and then Jerusalem was over there. So it's like 900 miles. So that's like from here to Disney World is like kind of how far they were taken. So it was kind of a long way away, right? Um, so if you can imagine, like, what would these Israelite people that were living in exile have been experiencing and feeling? You know, it's about four generations where they were taken into exile, a different culture. They even had to change their calendar, their calendar system, what they called the different months. They had to change their ways of doing things. And back to this picture, does anyone know what this is? Dakboki, yeah, it's dakboki. And in Korea, there's this kind of, it's like a new fusion take on dakboki, which is a, a rose cream dakboki. Um, and so I, I teach flute, and one of my flute students, she had only been away. She recently moved with her family from Korea, um, like this year. So she just started seventh grade. So it's the end of seventh grade, and she's talking to me about how she misses Korea so much, and she's going to go back to Korea this summer. And she's like, oh, yeah. They have this food, it's rose dakboki, and I just miss it so much. And this is the picture from Instagram that I could find of the rose dakboki. It looks so good. So she'd only been away, you know, for nine months, and already she's missing her food. So you can imagine the people that were in exile, how much they missed their culture, how much they missed their food, how much they must have missed being around the temple, um, and all that surrounded that. So a few years after Nehemiah, um, Nehemiah is going to play a pretty big role in this passage, but a few years before he comes into prominence, um, the Persians have mercy on the Israelites that are all living in Persia. Because Persia had already conquered Babylon. So Babylon did conquer the, the southern kingdom, but then Persia conquered Babylon. So now it's Persia. They're the leaders. And um, they've had mercy on the Israelites, and uh, they allowed some of them to travel back home. So if you look at this map, they made a four-month journey from Susa all the way back to Jerusalem. And what do you think they found there? It was destroyed. Uh, a lot of the people, there was just a few, like a small remnant, if you could call them, who had remained in uh, Jerusalem, who hadn't been taken away into exile. All of them had turned away from God. They had married people that didn't believe in God, and so their religion was diluted. Um, they weren't very faithful to God anymore. Everything was in shambles. The temple was in shambles. The walls were in shambles. Um, and they had really lost their way um, and their identity as a people. Um, so they began rebuilding. They started with the temple first. That was the most important. So they rebuilt the temple. And then Ezra comes back, and he's like, you guys... 
Don't you remember Moses came down on Mount Sinai and gave us the Ten Commandments and the laws, the ways in which we're supposed to be the people of God. Um, And so he comes back to Jerusalem and he's like, I'm going to teach you guys and remind you how to live as God's people. So he starts to do that. But it's like with varying degrees of success. Um, The Israelites are kind of known as being um, a rebellious, stiff-necked people. So they kind of get it. They kind of don't. Um, And so this is where we find Nehemiah. So starting in verses 1 through 2, if you have your Bibles, you can read along. I'm just going to read just a couple verses, and we're going to go through it. So in 1 through 2, in the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. And so Nissen is like our mid-March, mid-April. So things are st- crops are starting to grow. It's getting a little bit warmer outside. They're in Susa, um, so they're 900 miles away from Jerusalem. King Artaxerxes was... Um, there were three Persian kings named King Artaxerxes. This one, there's not a lot to note about him. He reigned for 40 years, um, and he was probably right after King Xerxes, which was, he was married to Esther, Queen Esther. So if you guys know the story of Queen Esther, wow, mind blown. My daughter's favorite Bible character, Queen Esther. Um, It was around this time. So Queen Esther was like, Ish, a contemporary of Nehemiah. Also Daniel, if you're familiar with the story of Daniel, Daniel was also brought, he was one of the exiles brought into Babylon. Um, But so what do we know about Nehemiah? Um, I researched him. We don't really know that much about him. All that can be found is like the name of his father, but there's not too much more. I was hoping there'd be like a really cool lineage and he's like related to Joseph or Abraham or something. He's probably related to one of them. But what we do know is that he was a cupbearer. Does anyone have any idea what a cupbearer does? Holds a cup. Yes, he holds a cup. Yes. So he was supposed to, he had a very, very important role. He had to guard against the king being poisoned. And so he was like the guard over everything that the king would drink. So he had to be highly trusted. He had to be highly trusted. Why? Because he could also like, you know, put some stuff into the drink too. If he really hated the king, he was in charge of that. And he would have the last touch on that cup before he served it to the king. Uh, It was a really prominent position. So it's pretty notable that Nehemiah, just like Queen Esther, was an Israelite. So an immigrant to this foreign country, kind of enslaved, not there by their own volition, but had rose in prominence and in favor. Um, The cupbearer had really close proximity to the king and his harem, um, and bearer of the king's signet ring, which was like an expression of his authority. Um, And basically, the the cupbearer was the king's CFO, chief financial officer. So he had a lot of different roles. So this cupbearer, Nehemiah, is not just like a servant. He's not just like a waiter at like Tomokun or something like that. But he's the CFO that brings the wine that makes sure it's not poisoned before the king drinks it. Um, He's also really sad. And he's, he's not sad, he's devastated. Um, and we're going to elaborate on why that is in the next couple of verses. But notice a few couple interesting things that are playing out. One, the king notices that he's sad. That's really significant. And then he not only notices, but he asks him why he's sad. And the text also says that Nehemiah is afraid. So why would Nehemiah be afraid? 
Um, if you look into kind of the context of the cupbearer, um, showing anything but joy in the presence of the king could result in not imprisonment, not in punishment, but in the death penalty. So if you've ever been around, I hope I don't offend, offend anyone, maybe like older, like ajima kind of people, and it's like, if you're sad, if you're having a bad day, like too bad, you need to be like, hi, right? Um, that's kind of how it was with the king. Like, you, you could be having the worst day of your life, but because of your position, because of your role to serve, you had to look joyful. You had to be happy. And if you were not looking joyful and happy, the king would be like, I don't want, like, sad, depressed people around me serving me my wine. I just want to feel good. And so, to death with you, because you look sad. But that was not the case with Nehemiah. Um, so it's surprising that the king, one, takes notice that he's sad and then asks him why he's sad. So in verses 3 through 4, it says, But I said to the king, this is Nehemiah, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, What is it you want? That's super significant. Um, so one chapter ago, because we're in Nehemiah 1, what happens in Nehemiah, uh, Nehemiah 2? What happens in Nehemiah chapter 1? Um, Nehemiah, some of the people that were in Jerusalem have come back to Susa. Um, the ones that have been sent there to go rebuild the temple and all of that have come back. And Nehemiah in chapter 1 has just heard reports that the people are in great trouble. They're in great distress. They're in great disgrace. Um, the wall of Jerusalem that was keeping protection around the whole city is still in ruins. Um, the gates have been burned with fire. Basically, not much has changed. Even though Ezra and Zerubbabel have gone back and they've started to rebuild, um, the people aren't being super faithful, and the city still looks bad. Um, it's, not, it's not been rebuilt in the way that it should be in order for these people to regain their identity as the people of God. And so what does Nehemiah do in chapter 1? He weeps, he mourns, he fasts, uh, and he prays. And it'd be easy to think when you're reading Nehemiah 1 and then Nehemiah 2 that it just kind of goes consecutively. Like he hears about this report, things are bad, then he weeps and prays and mourns and fasts, and then he goes and he, right to the king. But he did this all in chapter 1, all of this praying, mourning, and fasting and weeping uh, for four months. He did that for four months. And it's interesting, if you look at his prayer, he prays, Remember, he's like, God, remember the instructions that you gave Moses. If you're unfaithful, um, you'll scatter the people. But if we return to you and we obey your commands, you said that you were going to gather us together. That's from Deuteronomy 30. Um, and so he's saying, God, remember, you said that even if we were disobedient, if we became obedient again, you were going to gather us. Even if we were among all the different nations, you were going to gather us. So God, I want you to remain consistent and true to the promises that you made Moses years and years ago. Um, and then he prays in verse 11 of chapter 1, give me success and favor. And that's the setup for chapter 1. So Nehemiah is absolutely brokenhearted 
at the current state of his hometown, um, and yet he shows great vulnerability um, and honesty and desperation in grieving for his people and the state of his people. Um, and he starts out his prayer in this way, you know, that God, you're a covenant, uh, you keep your covenant of love. So he's appealing to who God is and what God has said in the past and saying, this is the basis of why you should hear my prayer. It's because who you are and because of what you have already said. So looking at the end of verse 4, it says, Then I prayed to the God of heaven, because remember, the king is now saying, what do you want? This is really significant. So he's not just noticed he's sad. He's not just um, asked why he's sad. He's saying, what do you want? Um, So he prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. So I just want to pause here. Um, The text specifically tells us here that Nehemiah pauses to pray before he answers the king. Um, But we already know he's been praying a lot in chapter 1, right? So as we think about prayer, there are just a couple things that I think we can learn from Nehemiah about prayer. They're not on the slide, so if if you're taking notes or on your phone or whatnot, or just remembering, you can remember. So the first one is patience and prayer. So a lot of times, like when I was a high school student, I think God knew that if God didn't answer my prayer right away, um, maybe, maybe that would have been the, the apex for me to like not really believe that God answered in prayer or whatnot. But that explanation, that example of God immediately answering my prayer, um, that doesn't always happen. So Nehemiah was praying for months upon months upon months for an opportunity um, for God to do something and intervene. So patience in prayer. Um, two, it matters who we're praying to. Um, so when we pray, we're praying to God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that at the end, but that God is so powerful. And the fact that we are praying to that God makes all the difference. Um, because we're not praying to some other, uh, non-God. We're not praying to our spouse or our friends or our family. We're praying to the God of the universe, the God of creation. And then three, prayer precedes the present. And so what we see here is that in this interaction with the king, where Nehemiah is shown favor by the king, the king takes notice. He decides not to send him to death for looking sad, but actually asks about his situation, asks him what he needs. Um, That didn't just happen, but Nehemiah actually prayed about that. And so prayer precedes the present. Um, The fact that Nehemiah prays before all of this happens um, is a direct answer to Nehemiah's prayer, that the the king has shown favor uh, on Nehemiah. So continuing to verse 5, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So he basically is like, here's what I want. But it's just in general terms. Like, I want to go back to my city, and I want to be the one. Um, it doesn't say this in, uh, in this chapter here, but Nehemiah has great gifts of administration. Um, he's super organized. He has great gifts of leadership. He can rally people. He's very passionate. Um, but he also has this vision. He's like, you know, God, you've promised this. And I remember that in the scripture, that you promised this. And so I have this vision that I can go back and that you can use me to actually restore Israel, restore the wall, and restore my people. So verse 6, Then the king and the queen sitting beside him asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. 
Um, so it's, it makes sense. You know, the king's kind of leaning in now. He's like, huh, okay, you want to go back to Jerusalem, so that's going to be like a four-month journey there, but you're my cupbearer. You're super important to me, so like how long is this going to take? Are you going to be gone for a year, two years? Um, and Nehemiah can see like, oh, he's, he's getting engaged. Like he's, he's interested in what I'm saying. Um, I also said to him, Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, uh, may I have letters to the governor of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I ride in Judah? And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. So Nehemiah started his ask pretty general, but then he gets, he's very strategic. He starts general, but then he gets really specific. Um, and he can see that things are going well. So um, for all of you kids out there, I want you to listen up. Have you ever had this sense that like your parents are just in a really good mood. Like, you know, they're smiling, maybe something happened really, you know, positively that day. And so you take the moment and the opportunity, you're like, hey, could we, um, could we get sushi tonight? Could we go out and get sushi? And you see your parents be like, oh yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe we could. And then what about, can we just get, can we get boba afterwards? And they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we would consider it. And then, oh, and then can we go home and watch a movie tonight? And, and your parents are like, yeah, sure, you know, because you can just tell they're in a pretty good mood. So you start kind of small. You're like, just sushi. That's all I want. But then you're like, oh, but I want bubble tea. How about that too? And then a movie. And this is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's starting general, but then he can see that the king and the queen are really interested. So he's like, you know what? I'm going to start asking for the more specific things that I need. I need a letter um, to the governors of the Trans-Euphrates so that I will be safe on my journey there. He's not a stupid man. He's like, I have to go through all these different nations, and I could get killed. Or people could think that I'm disobeying the king by going back to Jerusalem. So I want a letter that's going to guarantee me that they're not going to kill me on my way to Jerusalem so that you know I would not be able to even make it to where I need to go. And by the way... He's also not a stupid man. I need to rebuild these walls. I need to rebuild Jerusalem. So um, can you send me to the lumber guy? And can you tell him that he needs to give me tons of lumber to rebuild the citadels, the walls, everything? Oh, and also, I'm not also stupid. I need a house when I get there to Jerusalem because that's, you know, I haven't lived there before. So by the way, can I also have lumber for the house that I'm going to live in? So he's a really, really savvy, smart person. Uh, So moving on then in verse 8. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. So I went on to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The the king had also sent army officials and cavalry with me. So not only did the king grant his request specifically, he gave him even more. He basically is giving him like an entourage of people that are going to protect him along the way. Um, And one key thing here in this passage um, is that the only reason that we are given in the text that the king grants Nehemiah's request is prayer. It is God's intervention because the gracious hand of God was on me, um, on even the most potential adversarial person in power over him. God's hand was on him. And so for me, as I, as I think about uh, Nehemiah and what Nehemiah is speaking to me in this present moment, um, there are some very specific, even audacious visions and requests that I sometimes have. For Nehemiah, if you think about it, this was, this was a really audacious ask. 
I'm going to go rebuild the city that was destroyed hundreds of years ago, and I'm going to try to gather and rally all my people back to worship God and become the people of God again. That was an audacious, audacious vision, request, you know, desire, heart's desire. Um, and some of the things for me that I feel like are audacious, um, I'm, I'm too afraid to pray about sometimes. Um, or perhaps I've gotten so used to them not changing that I, I just, I'm like, well, you know, it's been this way for so long, I, I don't think that it could change. Even though it's audacious, it's just so audacious, it's too audacious to even think about it changing. Um, or perhaps, you know, you, you lose hope, and you're just like, it, nothing has changed, so it just, I just don't have any hope anymore. Um, but the text doesn't focus on how audacious our prayers are, or how audacious Nehemiah's prayer is. Um, this text focuses on who we are praying to, the God that Nehemiah is praying to. And so it's not how audacious Nehemiah's prayers are, it's how audacious and powerful and big the God that he's praying to is, and how powerful God is to hear those prayers and be reminded of who God is and what God has already said he's going to do for his people and for you and for me um, that really makes the difference. Nehemiah just presents these audacious prayers, but he's praying them to a God that can actually have power to change those circumstances. So for Nehemiah, uh, he's reminded, if you look a little bit later in Nehemiah, he's saying, you know, God, you're the God who led the Israelites out of Egypt. You're the God who parted the Red Sea. You provided manna. You spoke at Mount Sinai. Um, you know, for us, praying to God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're the one, you're the God who's healed the paralytic, the bleeding woman, who's given sight to the blind, who's ate with the socially rejected, who's raised Lazarus from the dead. And most importantly, you are the God that has conquered death, who has broken the chains of sin and death um, and risen to life, seated at the right hand of the Father, and breathed on us the Holy Spirit. That's the God that we pray to. Um, and we see Nehemiah cares so much about the desolation of his people, um, that this vision that God has promised becomes his calling. It becomes his ministry um, to revive his people. But in order to do that ministry that he's been called to, he needs really practical things. So it's not enough that he's called, but he, he needs things to be able to do the things that God has called him to. Um, in a second, I'll invite Haram up, but just a few final thoughts. Um, as I've been in ministry, there have been times where I need things. Uh, I need for God to move in this person's life. I want to see this person decide to follow Jesus, or I need resources, or I need inspiration, or I just need to not be nervous right now. There's various different things. And for you, in your callings and in your work, um, there are various things that you might need as well. And I had a mentor. Her name was Dolores. And she said one day as she was mentoring me, um, you know, Sarah, this is a really simple exercise, but just take a piece of paper, make a T, a T chart, right? And on the left, write everything that you need from God. 
very specifically. Don't just say like, I need your love, I need your grace, I need your forgiveness. But be like, I need this, and I need this, and I need this. Um, Because when God calls us to something, God also wants to answer our prayers for the things that we need. He wants to resource us to do what he's called us to do. And so I I said, okay, I I will do that. And so in my journal, um, I made a list. And on the left of the T, I wrote everything that I needed, very specifically. And then Dolores said, on the right, you write down how God answers all of those prayers. And sure enough, by the end of the summer, God had answered, but not just answered, had exceeded the ways um, that God answered those prayers. Sometimes it wasn't exactly the way and the thing that I wanted. So this sermon's not about God being a vending machine God and like you put in your coin and you say, God, I want a million dollars, okay? And God's like, got it. Just be patient, but it's coming. And it gives you a million dollars. It's not about that, uh, but it's more trusting in the who that we're praying to and not being afraid to make specific audacious requests. Um, another thing too, I was, um, I have a really good friend and he's just kind of, for all you parents out there, you'd want to have him as a son. Um, he loves Jesus, um, and he's integrated this idea of his faith being combined with his work, all of these things. And we were at this function with him and his wife and um, his parents had come all the way over from a different country, so I'd never met him, but I was really curious to talk to his dad, and I, I just caught him, and I said, like, wh- okay, I'm a parent. You see my daughter, Junia, over there? Like, uh, like what, what did you do as a parent to produce such a good son? Like, tell me your secret. You know, is it Kumon? Is it, you know? <laughs> and, and his answer, like, it really floored me. He was like, I fasted every Friday for my children. He had two sons. I fasted every, every week, once a week for them. And I was like, wow, that's like so spiritual, um, but yet so simple, right? Um, like Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah at Nehemiah 1, fasting, praying, mourning, the things that he deeply longs for um, in his life and his community's life, um, he's bringing before God. Um, he's fasting, he's crying out, saying, God, only you can change these circumstances, and I think that you can change them. So through Nehemiah, God is inviting us to either, um, some of you have great prayer lives, um, and for some of you, it's just deepening your prayer lives, becoming audacious with the things that you're asking God um, that you really need for the ministry that he's called you to. Or for some of you, um, it's reviving it. Maybe you had a flourishing prayer life. Um, But for Nehemiah, prayer is like a lifestyle for him. There's, you know, uh, 14 prayers in the book of Nehemiah. About 10% of the book is all prayers. So he's praying constantly. Even before he's asked a question, he says a little prayer. Um, and then he, he goes on to respond to the king. Um, or maybe it's cultivating a prayer life. You know, like this sermon series, again, is things that we need to be reminded of. Prayer is like the most cliche thing some person can come up and speak about, right? Other than maybe like confession or forgiveness or something like that, or Jesus's love. All these things are so cliche, um, but putting them into practice actually transforms our life. It's so simple, and yet it's so profound. So uh, I'll invite Haram up, but one question that I have for you, um, on top of, you know, do you need to cultivate, deepen, or revive your lifestyle of prayer, um, is what very specific asks do you need to make, do you have uh, to God or to others 
uh, to do the ministry that God has called you to? Is there something very specific that you need right now for the ministry that God has called you to? And this ministry could be um, you as a student. So a lot of you are students out there. It could be like, God, I need to be able to remember. Well, no, it's summer break. Maybe you're taking summer school. I need to be able to remember all the things that I have to memorize. Um, for some of you guys, it's, it's being a teacher, professor, engineer, doctor, caregiver, parent, mentor, friend. Um, is there something that seems insurmountable like Nehemiah's vision? That was an audacious, almost insurmountable kind of thing. And yet he's bold enough to approach God and say, this is the specific thing that I need. And he approaches the king too. Maybe there's someone in your life who has power over you. And it's asking God for favor from that person to be able to make that request, to be able to do the thing that God has called you to. So I want us to take a moment and for you to just kind of capture, if any, any thought comes to your mind, one specific ask that you want to make God. Um, and remembering that it's not the focus on the specific ask, but it's the who you're directing that ask to that really makes a difference. So take a moment and then I'll pray for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray that you would aliven our hearts and our imagination. Um, for Nehemiah, I'm sure it wasn't something that immediately came to him, that he should go and rebuild the wall and that he should help revive his people, bring them back to you. Um, but would you stir in our hearts and our imaginations, what is it that you want us to do? What is something that you've given us as a passion, um, that you're passionate about seeing, that you actually want to move us into, um, into leadership for, um, into ministry of? Um, I pray, Father, that you would um, remove any kind of lies that say that um, what we're thinking about asking for is too big. Um, and I pray that you would just um, stretch our imaginations, our holy imaginations, um, to be bold to bring our specific requests to you, knowing and trusting, Father, that you have the power to be able to hear, um, and you have the love and the compassion to hear, and then the power to be able to not only hear but respond to us. So help us see you move um, through our prayers and the ways that you respond. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Rest for closing worship.